0: Dr. Karen anderson Averill. Tell your story. Author. Psychologist. Musician. Listen to Dr. Karen to encourage your life. I'm all about taking charge. Taking charge of your thoughts. Taking charge of your life. I say it every week. And how sometimes when we have intense emotions, we can get caught ruminating and obsessing. And we've looked at the research and how that actually doesn't help us at all. In fact, it keeps us stuck and it keeps us depressed rather than helping move us forward. Single is the new black. Don't wear white. Till it's right. Very important. Very important. What are they doing to keep that excitement and that in, in love, love feeling? Channel a path to a more authentic you. Okay, this week, fight all you want, but whenever you fight, you have to hold hands. Learn how to have true intimacy.
1: Yeah, bottle that up and sell
0: it. <laughs> we want to make sure that the activities we're doing together are charging us up, getting us excited, giving us pleasurable feelings, and then helping us stay attracted to one another. Dr.
1: Karen Anderson April,
0: Love and life. I'm all about living authentically and finding the best version of you and living life to its fullest. Turn up your dial, get connected. You're listening to Dr. Karen on Love & Life right now. Welcome to Dr. Karen Love & Life. I'm Dr. Karen Anderson-Abrill. On Love & Life, we cover it all. We look at how to have true intimacy in romantic relationships, More meaningful friendships, healthier family connections, more fulfilling careers, and we delve into what psych research teaches us about living happy, hopeful, positive, and authentic lives. Today on Love and Life, we're going to delve into what I believe to be one of the most pressing concerns we face as a society today. Now, we all have many issues that tug at our hearts and that we are concerned about and then there are those issues that really keep us up at night the ones that really get to us and we have grave concerns about and for me one of these issues is something that I've read a lot about and I've researched a lot and I get asked a lot about because as a psychologist I get questions like so the teachers think that my son has ADHD do you think I should put him on Ritalin? Or, I get so freaked out when I go to parties. Do you think maybe I have social anxiety disorder? Should I start taking Xanax? And, and so what we're seeing in our culture today is the tendency to view emotions and personality traits that are well within the normal range of human functioning, we're viewing them as pathological. And because we're pathologizing sadness, nervousness, shyness. And because we're pathologizing these emotions and personality traits, then we're believing that we need to medicate them to get rid of them. So to dig deeper into this topic, I've invited psychiatrist Dr. Alan Francis to join me on the podcast. And as a reminder, a psychiatrist is a medical doctor who completes med school, just like any other doctor, physician, or surgeon, and then enters a residency which focuses on mental disorders. And so typically today, psychiatrists prescribe medications to treat emotional and mental conditions, whereas psychologists like me, we complete a PhD in psychology, and we are typically more likely to go to counseling and psychotherapy as a first approach to handling and treating mental concerns. But both of us use what's called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And this is how we assess And diagnose a condition. So you come to your psychologist or your psychiatrist or your therapist, and you say, I'm feeling this, 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 and this. And then they look to the DSM to figure out what condition you have. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Alan Francis. Alan Francis, MD, was the chairman of the DSM IV Task Force and part of the leadership group for the DSM III and DSM r He's the author of many books. Two of his most recent are Saving Normal and Twilight of American Sanity, A Psychiatrist Analyzes the Age of Trump. He's a professor emeritus and former chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Science at Duke University School of Medicine. Dr. Francis, thank you so very much for joining me today. It's a true honor to have you on the
1: program. Well, your honor, my pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: So I want to just let my listeners know a little bit about how I came across your work and what inspired me about it. So I'm going to kind of set the stage a little bit giving just a little bit of background of my interaction with, again, your work, and then we'll take it from there. So a few years ago, I came across Saving Normal, and I want to give the listeners the entire title of the book so that they get a better sense of what the book is about. It's Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. So... Tell us a little bit more about the problem just to inform my listeners about what's going on.
1: Well, I think that there's a cruel paradox that people who don't need medicine are getting far too much, and people who desperately do need medicine are shamefully neglected. So At this point in our country, about 80% of the medication, psychiatric medication prescribed is prescribed by general practitioners, and it's usually done within about 10 minutes of a first session. Often, the person prescribing has not that much knowledge of psychiatry, is very influenced by the drug salesman, and desperately needs to get the patient out of the office in order to see the next patient. And the easiest thing to do is to give a free sample or prescribe a medication. We now have 13% of our population taking an antidepressant. Um, Approximately 7% of kids are taking a stimulant for attention deficit disorder. Antipsychotics are being wildly overused in nursing homes and in kids with conduct problems. Uh, The benzodiazepines are pretty much useless medicines that are widely prescribed because they give people a short-term sense of comfort, but at great risk of long-term addiction. And we all know about the opioid prescription epidemic that that has so decimated our, our country. I think the point is that we're overly quick to diagnose the distress of everyday life as psychiatric problem and to prescribe medicine for it. At the very same time, people with severe, clear-cut psychiatric disorders have very little access to treatment. We've closed down the beds, and we've defunded the community mental health centers. We've taken away coverage. And so we now have 350,000 of the severely mentally ill in prison, in prison, 250,000 homeless, these are people who could be very easily and well-treated we had we provided sufficient funding for them to have a place to go, a community me- mental health center, um, easy access to treatment, and they do need medication. So I think that the whole idea of saving normal is that we're terrifically unbalanced uh, in the stupidest and cruelest of ways over-treating people who basically don't need it and terribly under-treating people who do.
0: And it really concerns me on, on on so many levels, and that's why I was so thrilled to have you on, because again, I don't think the average person understands this. You know, it's it's the kind of thing where the average person would be like, "Wow, isn't it weird that, like, all the boys in my in my son's class have a d h d and 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 things like, wow, how is it that, wow, a lot of my friends have bipolar. I never even knew that disorder existed until a couple of years ago, but who knew? Everyone's got that bipolar. Diagnostic inflation and even essentially fake diagnoses that serve the purpose of, like you said, getting someone out of the office quickly, and the pharmaceutical corporations are certainly happy to have more sales. But it's so troubling on so many levels because, again, to your point, we're not helping the people who actually do need the medication. And then I'm also concerned that we're slapping people with labels, especially young children, with labels of you are ADHD. And and then as we know about identity, we're going to rise to the occasion. I mean, I have teacher friends who say things like, oh, yeah, kids will come up to me in seventh grade and say, well, I have ADHD, so you can't expect anything else from me in this classroom. This is how I'm going to behave. So that internalization of the identity of that label of sickness is troubling as well.
1: Yeah, The way I like to put it is that it's the easiest thing in the world to, to give a person a diagnosis. It's the hardest thing in the world to erase that diagnosis. It, it should be just the other way around. That people should underdiagnose, and, and all diagnoses, especially in kids, should be written in pencil with the awareness that with the passage of time, the, the, the child may look very different, that the developmental forces, uh, peer pressures, school pressures, family pressures, uh, almost everyone comes to you on the worst day of their life. And you can't make a right. judgment about the past or into the future based on how people look on the worst day of their lives. It's terrible that insurance companies force doctors to make a diagnosis in order to get paid during the evaluation period. There'd be many fewer people diagnosed if we allowed six weeks or so of evaluation um, before we, made, we forced the doctor to make a, uh, a diagnosis because many, many people get better. If you just allow for the passage of time and support and normal resilience, many people will get better just during the period of evaluation. If you start them on a medication in the first visit and they get better, it's likely that the uh, success will be misattributed to the medication, and the person or the kid will be kept on it for very long periods of time when it was unnecessary. So my guess is that if we say 13% of the population is on antidepressant, you know maybe 3 or 4% actually benefit from the antidepressant, and the rest are placebo responders who are stuck with the side effects without any real benefit. Knowing no one hearing this should just stop their medicine because the psychiatric medicines, many of them have withdrawal symptoms, and the person may actually need them. So, there has to be a clear evaluation of whether the medicine was necessary in the first place. And even if you didn't need it in the first place, if you stop too quickly, you're going to have symptoms. So, I'm not recommending people just on their own decide to stop medication, but I am recommending that people become very informed about their condition. Uh, they become very informed about the indications for medications, and they think seriously before starting a medication, and also think seriously before continuing a medication whether it's really right for them. For certain people, medicine's absolutely essential and life-saving, and preventing episodes is a very important way of improving people's lives. For other people, the medicine may be serving no purpose at all, and they have to be considering the risks as well, the benefits of staying on them.
0: You're listening to Dr. Karen Anderson Abril on Love and Life. Go to her website, drkarin.me. That's www.drkaren.me. Have any questions or would like to share your story with Dr. Karen? Email her, Karen, karin, at D-R-K-A-R-I-N.me. That's such an important point, and it when you say be informed, and I think it's troubling because in our culture, and correct me if I'm wrong, we are the only Western society that allows direct marketing to consumers on psychotropic medication, and so we think we're informed, but that's because we're sitting at home watching a commercial that says if your Prozac isn't working, take Abilify, which is the antipsychotic, so the Prozac isn't working, which to my mind says let's think about another approach to treatment, but we are then informed by Big Pharma that the next step should be an additional drug, the chaser drug, because the first drug's not working. And it's not that the drug isn't working. It's that we need the additional drug. So that's my concern, is that the information that's available for people to become informed is often skewed.
1: Uh, precisely. The only other country that allows direct-to-consumer advertising in New Zealand... Okay. Um, the, the reason it's allowed in this country is because Big Pharma is the, the by far the biggest contributor to politicians. They dominate Washington. Uh, it's scandalous. Uh, they're outrageous in every aspect of what they do. The pricing is really like your money or your life pirate pricing, monopoly pricing. The research they do is just geared to keeping their monopoly power. They're not able very often to produce really uh, important new discoveries. All they do is extend patent life so they can price at ridiculously high levels. Their um, advertising is extremely misleading. So I would say to everyone listening, don't trust anything a drug company ever says. That they're in business to promote the, the profits of the shareholders and the um, the high salaries of the executives. That they're not in the business of helping patients. That's not why they exist. If if, if they do help patients, it's almost it's almost by accident. And be very mistrustful of any information. Never believe a paper that's been funded by a drug company. Be very mistrustful of information that comes from drug companies. But that doesn't mean there isn't a lot on the Internet that isn't valuable. And I think it's it's important that people um, become informed about their symptoms informed about how the diagnostic system works. I think you should never go to a doctor without having several questions written down in advance because it's hard in in the heat of the moment to think about what to say and expect your doctor to give common sense, reasoned answers and always be asking about the risks, the benefits and doctor, what would you do in my position and why?
0: It's hard to become informed based on the biases that exist in our culture and the information that unless we dig pretty deep, We're going to just go with what's available to us. And because Big Pharma is so powerful, what's available to us, as we've said, is pretty skewed. Just getting back to children. So I graduated with my master's in clinical psych uh, in the early 90s. And at that time, so we were working with the 3R at that time. And at that time, you would never give children the diagnosis of bipolar for the exact reasons you talked about earlier, you said, you know, developmental concerns, they could grow out of these sorts of conditions and whatever we're seeing. And so (laughs) then I I kind of, I was a professor for 10 years and my last uh, gig as a professor, I was teaching a lot of school teachers who wanted to become school counselors. By that time I had my doctorate in developmental psych and I was teaching clinical mental health counselors and also the school counseling uh, students. And they were talking about all these kids in their class with bipolar. And I was just appalled. I thought, bipolar? Who's slapping bipolar on children? That's understood. You don't give a child a a diagnosis like that. And lithium was the drug for bipolar. But again, as we've been talking, there was research that showed that there was some medication that seemed to help these kids calm calm down their tantrums. Again, these kids who are being labeled bipolar were not showing the depressive symptoms. They were showing, quote-unquote, manic symptoms, which was essentially they were having temper tantrums. And because they were being treated, again, in air quotes, by certain medications, then all of a sudden it became very convenient to give them the diagnosis of bipolar.
1: Well, precisely. I think we rejected the idea that there was a childhood form of bipolar characterized by much milder symptoms of irritability, not the the clear-cut switches between depression and between mania. We rejected that idea. We thought it was vague, that there was very little scientific support. It was really just one group at Harvard that was pushing it. However, that group was funded at, at enormous levels by the drug industry, gave conferences all over the country, and even though it was rejected as an idea by the dsm four, it became very popular, and the rate of childhood bipolar disorder increased by 40 times, and they were giving medicines, powerful medicines, to two- and three-year-olds. Uh, Luckily, there were a bunch of lawsuits because bad things happened, Um, not luckily for the people involved, but luckily because it it helped us, uh, the public to understand the dangers of this and doctors to understand it. And there's much less of that abuse now than there was before. There was also a um, great increase in the diagnosis of bipolar disorder in adults. And a large part of that happened because the drug companies got an indication for antipsychotics and began advertising misleadingly as if everyone who had a good day in the midst of their depressions had bipolar disorder. And bipolar medicine was added onto the treatment of of many people who didn't need it. The, The underlying message here is that a good diagnosis done carefully, usually over a pretty long period of time, can be enormously helpful for people who really meet the, the criteria for a condition. And it can be a change, change point in a person's life. It, it's, it's better to understand what's wrong than not to understand what's wrong. And very often people are relieved to get a diagnosis that's accurate. There may be some stigma attached to it, but there's also a relief. I'm not uniquely damned. People understand what I have. There's a treatment for it. This is my likely outcome. That can be very reassuring. A wrong diagnosis is a horrible thing. It, it, it's very difficult, times impossible, to erase the the uh, record. can take on a stubbornness about a wrong diagnosis. I've had many people ask for my help in getting bad diagnoses erased from their medical records. It sometimes works, but sometimes the people, even though it's obviously wrong, I and other psychiatrists know a lot about this are saying it's wrong, the people will not take it off the record. A bad diagnosis can haunt for life, is difficult to get rid of, is very easy to give, and the less time that's spent talking to the patient the more likely we are to get inaccurate diagnoses. Um, Many patients were told you have a little bit of bipolar disorder. Now, that's absurd. Unless Unless diagnoses are clear cut, they should never be made. I couldn't be more emphatic on the need to use psychiatric diagnosis very carefully to take psychiatric pills only appropriately and the, the diagnostic system is neither good or, nor bad. It's good when used well. It's bad when used carelessly. Psychiatric medications are neither good nor bad. That appropriate use can be life-saving. Uh, loose use can be actually can lead to overdose and death and, and lots of complications and side effects. And you can't depend on the system to protect you. That as a patient you have a responsibility to yourself or to your children to become so well-informed that you're a full partner in all of the decisions that are made.
0: And that, that really is such an important point to underscore, because we have to take that responsibility. And we're in a society that really encourages us to just trust our doctor. And I want to trust my doctor, but I don't, frankly, not at this point. I really don't. I mean, I've had a doctor, a primary care physician, who I went in for just a basic physical. And at the end of the 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 exam he said well now how are you feeling emotionally and he knew I was a psychology professor so I was kind of like oh this is interesting and he said you know because if you're feeling any depression we can always talk about some medication and I'm thinking oh my gosh I came in here for a basic exam please do like I don't want to go down this road I, I didn't ask to go down this road I feel like it's leading I feel like you have some sort of agenda you want to get a certain number of of prescriptions and I, I just looked at him I said you know I'm good thank you and and so that kind of thing makes me not trust my doctor and it, and it makes me not trust the, just the landscape in general right now. And and it's so important as, as you continue to reiterate that, yes, there is a time and a place for diagnosis and for medication, no question. But because we've so gone so far in the other direction, I'm very skeptical now. And as a psychologist, people come to me and they'll say things like, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so has bipolar in this. And so-and-so has ADHD. And I just, you know, at this point, I, that doesn't mean much to me anymore. <laughs> you know,
1: it really doesn't. Well, I think also we should make the point that although we're discussing mental health issues today, the, the very same problem is part of all of American medicine. And that over-testing, over-diagnosis, and over is endemic throughout the American medical system. It results in enormous cost. It's part of the reason our, our system's too expensive. And we shouldn't be cutting coverage for 30 million people. We should make sure that the people who have coverage aren't being over and overtreated. It also leads to great harms. Too much medicine can be very bad for your health. And in this country, the third leading cause of death is medical mistakes. And part of why there are so many medical mistakes is that there are so many um, unnecessary treatments being offered. Often treatments that in conjunction with one another are additively more harmful than helpful. Doctors don't know their patients. They're treating lab tests rather than people. And it's very important, at least as important as a medical patient, to be knowledgeable, to be cautious, to be asking questions, and to be getting second opinions.
0: Well, that's so true. You have oftentimes an individual who has several different doctors prescribing different medications. We don't know if they're in communication about the cocktail effect from these medications. It's very troubling. And again, I, I, I don't want to sound extreme. You know, people sometimes when I'm talking, people are like, what are you, a Scientologist or something? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just really t- concerned. And that's why I was so thrilled to have you on the program, because these conversations, unless like, like we've said all along, how do we get informed unless we avail ourselves of conversations like these to get more information to help us kind of sift through everything that's out there? I mean, to your point, I'm thinking about in the last couple of years, I've turned on the TV and all of a sudden I see that if you have to use the restroom more than five times a day, all of a sudden you have, I don't, what do they call it? It's a frequent urinary, urination if, uh, syndrome or something. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Really?
1: Yeah, you know, what's happening is it, it the the drug industry is a four hundred billion dollar industry, and they spend a, enormous amount of money, much more money on marketing and lobbying politicians than they do on research. And the way to get a blockbuster drug is not necessarily to have a new drug that's really that helpful. It's the marketing of the drug. It, it's selling the ill to, in order to peddle the pill. I think that there are treatments that are absolutely essential. We don't want to make people to be, become too skeptical so they won't go to the doctors. On, on the other hand, you, you have to realize that in the United States at this point, the, the bias, because of the, the, the way docs are paid, they get paid for providing services. They, they tend to overprovide services. They're worried about malpractice suits, and they'll go overboard in testing. The thresholds defining different diseases have been dumbed down. And many people who are now labeled as having a disease wouldn't have been labeled that way 20 years ago. Some of this is excellent. And we're doing a good job of treating hypertension so there are fewer strokes. Some of this is excessive. And each person has to become, since very rarely is there a doctor who knows all your problems, very rarely are doctors spending enough time talking to you to really get to know the way the problems may interact and what medicines you're taking and how those medicines may interact. You have to become an expert on your own, on yourself, and you have to ask questions and keep Googling to get answers, and expect your doctor to have common sense answers. And again, second opinions are often very valuable.
0: Yes. And I want to circle back to who we can trust, because as you mentioned, even some of our elite institutions, like Harvard, are being funded, and the average person would not know. They might read a report from someone out of Harvard about a a medicine and find out later, if they did some more digging, that they even the professors are being independently funded by pharmaceutical corporations.
1: Yeah, I think that at, at this point, I don't believe the literature. Um, yeah. That so many studies are published with hype. The news releases, the press releases are taken by journalists at face value. And there's an enterprise-wide tendency to emphasize and, and then hype positive results and to de-emphasize or not even publish negative results, so that the um, the benefits of treatment are exaggerated across the whole of um, the the, the uh, scientific endeavor, the the journal articles and the, and the uh, the newspapers and other media. Positive results tend to be exaggerated negative results tend to be buried. The drug companies do their best to accentuate even very small differences in favor of their drugs and to hide all the adverse effects or as many of the adverse effects as they possibly can. The newer drugs that are very expensive are pressed on doctors with tremendous marketing aggressiveness. The older drugs, which are often safer and more effective and cheaper, are pushed to the back of the of the pharmacy closet. I think that the um, medical advances uh, tend to be fairly slow and um, and and piecemeal. The drug company advertising is a billion dollar splashy. Uh, we can cure cancer, we can do this, we can do that. And the, the public is, is very susceptible to um, snake oil salesmen. It's always been true in the whole history of medicine and the hope it provides. I think that we should be very cautious that the, the last new thing is much more likely to be uh, at least exaggerated and maybe more harmful and definitely much more expensive than this, the tried and true, and that we should be very cautious in believing claims. Anything that comes out of a drug company automatically disbelieve. Simple as that. Anytime it says, ask your doctor, that's a come on. It turns out if, <laughs> if you do ask your doctor, you're 20 times more likely to get that medicine. And that's why the commercials all end with ask your doctor. But the minute you ask your doctor, you may be asking for trouble.
0: And, the, and when I hear that line, it just makes my blood boil. It really makes my blood boil because <laughs> I'm like, what do you think your doctor is going to say? That pharmaceutical rep was just in his office this week. What do you think he's going to suggest? I mean, it's infuriating, actually. Um, and
1: the pricing. I mean, the um, absolute highway robbery that's being foisted on patients, um, on taxpayers, on all of us. And the prices of drugs are way, way out of line with uh, their value and with their cost of development. And it's an absolute lie that we need to charge these ridiculous, you know, lately it's like $500,000 for cancer treatment. We need to charge this in order to be able to develop new drugs. No, they need to charge that because they're the most profitable industry in the world and that they've been able to blackmail politicians into giving them the right to set their own prices without real negotiation. And the American public is being ripped off. And one of the biggest causes of, of bankruptcy is the fact that our medical uh, treatments are way overpriced compared to the rest of the world. Two or three times, the, the same drug will be two or three times more expensive here than it is in the rest of the world because they have more political power in the United States. So the, the drug companies are not there for your benefit. Don't believe they're advertising.
0: Exactly. And because it's all tied into insurance then as well, which, as you were speaking to earlier, we need these diagnoses so that insurance will pay even for just if you're going for a regular counselor, you know, to see a therapist, just not even intending to have any medication, and you would like your your behavioral health plan to kick in to help fund the treatment, you have to have a diagnosis. And when oftentimes people are going to see a therapist for just some basic cognitive therapy, or just, you know, some basic kind of talk therapy. And yet, In order to use their insurance, they have to have a diagnosis when really, I mean, I went to see a counselor, had a bad breakup in my late 30s. And I was just sad. I knew I wasn't clinically depressed, but I knew I was sad. And I just wanted some strategies for kind of just a sounding board, someone to help me to work through it. And so I literally talked to my therapist and I said, Okay, so I'm a psychologist. So I know the deal here. I want to use my behavioral health benefits but I don't want you slapping me with some label. <laughs> I don't want it, I know. And she's like, how about adjustment disorder? I'm like, yes, I'm having a problem adjusting from being in a relationship to being single again, that works. But you know, not everyone's savvy enough to go, hey, I know the, the deal here, what are you gonna What are you gonna call me?
1: We'll really put this in, in, in clear perspective. In the 80s, when AIDS was a killer and people were dying in a year, an ugly death, we did a study where we did free testing so people could find out whether they were positive or negative. And we did a bunch of emotional measures before the testing, after the testing in six weeks. The The unsurprising finding was that it, the people who found out they were positive, that means a death sentence in a year and it's going to be horrible things along the way, they felt terrible right after the testing, horrible on all the measures. The people who got a negative result, wow, you know, this is an amazing moment in my life. I'm, I'm free and clear. Their, their emotional measures all skyrocketed. By six weeks, both groups were... Pretty much, not exactly, but pretty much where they started. Even getting the very worst, most life threatening news in life, most of us have a kind of happiness set point and a kind of resiliency. And with the support that comes with bad news and figuring out how we're going to cope with it, we get better. If you go to a doctor after losing a job or having a divorce or a death in the family or all the horrible things that life will throw at us, and you're feeling as bad as you've ever felt, and that doctor gives you a medicine. And six weeks later, you feel a lot better. You're going to think the medicine made you better. There's no way you're not going to believe that. But it, it's very likely, very, very likely that you would have gotten back just as our patients did in the 80s on your own with, with support, your resilience, with with reducing other other kinds of stress, we're just dealing with, we're creatures who always had to deal with very tough lives. It's always been part of the human condition, and we've usually done it without medication. The people who have clear-cut psychiatric disorders are in a different category. They have a set of symptoms that's very classic in most instances, that has sufficient duration to, that we know that it's not just going to disappear by itself, that are severe, and that are reliably diagnosed. And for many of these people, psychotherapy alone or time alone won't work. And without medication and without psychotherapy, they're not going to get better. And often, psychotherapy alone for them will not be good enough. That's where medication becomes also essential. Hi, I'm Brie Wade from Columbus, Ohio, and I enjoy listening to Dr. Karen Love & Life. I love the advice she gives and the encouragement. Every week, I look forward to a new Love & Life hack and her message of making it happen.
0: Dr. Francis, I want to thank you again for coming on the program. It was a true pleasure to have this conversation with you.
1: Oh, sure. Thanks again for inviting me.
0: So be sure to check out Dr. Francis's books, Saving Normal, An Insider's Revolt Against Out-of-Control Psychiatric Diagnosis, DSM-5, Big Pharma, and the Medicalization of Ordinary Life. His latest book, Twilight of American Sanity, a psychiatrist analyzes the age of Trump. Dr. Francis can also be found on Twitter at M D, and that's A-L-L-E-N-F-R-A-N-C-E-S-M-D. So the love and life hack for this week is, remember Dr. Francis's term, worried well. Most of us are well, even when we feel depressed, anxious, or distressed, because these feelings are part of the ordinary range of human emotion. Next time you find yourself ready to diagnose yourself, Remember, you're probably just like the rest of us. You're worried, but you're well. You can find me at my website, www.drkaren.me. On Twitter, I'm at dr Karen Anderson. Facebook, Dr. Karen Anderson Abril. Instagram, I'm at Dr. Karen. And remember that's Karen K-A-R-I-N. And I'd love to hear from you. You can email me your story at Karen at drkaren.me. Thanks so much for subscribing to the podcast and liking it on iTunes and SoundCloud. We're also on Stitcher and Spreaker at Dr. Karen Love and Life. If you head over to my website, please sign up for my Love and Life newsletter. I send out one or two emails a month, just letting you know what we're covering on the podcast, what I'm blogging about, and any appearances I might be making. Let me know if you have any topics you want me to cover. I want this to be your show as much as it is mine. Thanks to my producer, Michelle Musso, my communications manager, Dale Gregory, and my booking assistant, Christine Infanker. Take charge of your thoughts. Take charge of your life. This is Dr. Karen anderson Abrol. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, make it a great week.